It's time for the Smart Money Questions Podcast with Matt Hausman. This is the show that provides you with a sound financial education and helps you avoid financial pitfalls. Make sure you are asking the right questions by listening to the Smart Money Questions Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Hausman, your host for the Smart Money Questions podcast. And today I'm excited. We have someone that is extremely knowledgeable and has been involved in the banking and most recently the mortgage industry and has a lot of good information coming from where things have been and also where things are going, especially as we are dealing with COVID right now. And I want to introduce her. Her name is Lindsay Johnson. She is the president of the U.S. Mortgage Insurers the nation's leading private mortgage insurance association comprised of five of the six U.S. mortgage insurance companies in the country. And part of her work and what we're going to be talking about today is to advance the understanding, first of all, of private mortgage insurance, but also with her knowledge, is to be able to talk about the mortgage industry, the real estate industry, and where it's going as we go through this COVID. So, Lindsay, welcome to the program. Matt, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here to talk to you and your listeners. Well, thanks for being here. And also, um, as we were talking before we started recording, this is where you're at now, but you've had a lot of um, industry within the banking industry and the mortgage industry in the past to kind of really be able to help us understand where you see things going at this time. Yeah, I mean, my you know my background really crosses over policy and business. The two worlds kind of combine. Um, I mentioned I've been on the Senate Banking Committee and so really have a kind of full some understanding of how the, the sausage gets made and focused on some really important legislative efforts, including mortgage finance reform, the issue that never kind of goes away. Um, have been at a GSC, the Federal Home Bank of Atlanta. I have been with PwC, helping with their financial services practice and their government relations practice, and then working with mortgage insurance at here at USMI and really have the privilege of working alongside of our member companies who get up every day with a focus on enabling homeownership for millions of Americans. So yeah, ab- absolutely have um, sort of crossed the different worlds, but have had a foot in the mortgage finance space my entire career. So with that kind of background, I can kind of call you the expert, right? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a step, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sure sounds like it, let me tell you. Oh, right. <laughs> um, but so what you're doing now, let's talk about this. So help us understand, because I know many times we talk to clients and people that will reach out to us wanting to understand what is mortgage insurance, why it's needed, and how exactly does it work within the loan process, whether that is potentially a refinance or a purchase. Sure. So look, at at the most kind of fundamental level, mortgage insurance is not always well known, definitely not always well understood, but it is there to help borrowers who are unable to make a 20% down payment, who are viewed by lenders as higher risk, qualify for conventional financing. That's what we exist to do. And we do it in a way that really helps protect those lenders. So we cover first loss risk in front of, you know, the, the lender in front of the GSE in the event that the borrower is not able to repay their loan and there's not sufficient equity in the home to cover the amount that's owed. We've been doing this for 60 years. We've helped over you know, 33 million individuals have homeownership sooner than they otherwise could. And the insurance is necessary. I mean, there's ample data over the decades supporting the fact that borrowers who don't put uh, you know, a significant down payment down are higher risk. Through the financial crisis of 2008, you know, we paid upwards uh, more than 50 billion in claims to the GSEs. So it's um, it's a really significant role 
And that not only is it helping borrowers, it's helping lenders and helping taxpayers at the same time. 50 billion in 08. Wow. More than, yeah. It's, <laughs> that was a, a time period of true stress. And the good news is, and I'm sure we can talk about this more, but, you know, the lessons from that crisis, I think folks, you know, really can start to appreciate the, the lessons that lenders took, that servicers took, that mortgage insurers took from that crisis and how improved the system is today versus what it was before the financial crisis. And so even as you look at what we're going through right now with the COVID crisis, the industry, that just the entire uh, mortgage finance complex is in such a different place and really has an opportunity to be a source of strength kind of coming out of this crisis. One of the things we talk about, and sometimes uh, clients will reach out to me, they'll talk about how complicated the process is versus, you know, back in 06, 07. I mean, I joke, like, if you fogged a mirror, you got a loan. So is that, <laughs> is, um, is the insurance, is it's included now part of that complicated process or help us understand that? So look, I mean, this has been a requirement and thankfully, you know, uh, mortgage insurance is required for individuals who are not going to put 20% down. If you're going to get a conventional loan through Fannie and Freddie, you're going to have to have credit enhancement. Mortgage insurance is the most commonly used because we are the easiest for lenders to execute on many different levels. We're very transparent. The borrower understands what they're paying. And then the best news from a borrower perspective is once they reach 20% equity, the mortgage insurance comes off. So there is a true incentive from all parties. I mean, they're going to see their payment go down, which is always a welcome thing after a certain number of years. They'll see that payment come down. For individuals who go through FHA and get their loan through FHA, the insurance is going to stay on for the life of the loan because FHA insures that loan for the entire life of that loan. So there's some real differences and it is complicated. And you know, one thing that we tell borrowers and we're, we're constantly, even though we're a, a B2B industry, we work with lenders and we work with you know some of the other folks that are doing uh, and originating loans, at the end of the day, it's incredibly important for borrowers to understand not just how to be home ready. So what does it mean to have, you know, what's my, what's my credit score and how is that going to impact my rates? You know, what's my savings rate currently and how is that going to look in two years, you know, under my current job? We constantly are trying to provide resources out there in the marketplace for borrowers to be better prepared to go to that closing table so that they are what we call home ready. Our members, for example, again, even though we're B2B, our members have resources on their websites that are financial tools. So these calculators that not just take a, a point in time snapshot of here's what your payment would be if you put 5% down with private mortgage insurance versus what you would pay with FHA at 5%. It looks at things like your savings rate and what is HPA in your area? And you know what is that opportunity cost that you might be missing if you sit on the sidelines and wait to purchase versus maybe considering buying a little bit sooner with a little bit less down, takes into account things like uh, wanting to make sure that you've got savings left in your bank so that we don't end up with a situation where we don't have borrowers who have reserves in the bank and are really set up in a position that is going to strain their ability to repay that mortgage. So all those things are, you know, even though, again, we're B2B, we think it's uh, as takers of first loss risk. You know, we have skin in the game. We have a real incentive to make sure that these borrowers are do have an ability to repay and really wanting to make sure that they've got all the options kind of available to them. And that's sort of the second piece of the of the puzzle from a borrower perspective is looking at your different your different options and understanding the difference between a conventional loan and an FHA loan. 
and what are the loan limits and what are the down payment requirements and what are the payment options and you know how does that stay on the on your loan is it for the life of the loan or can you pay it off at a certain time so it is complicated we are continuously trying to uh, become better at communicating and educating borrowers we developed again even though we're b2b we've developed a website that's really just solely dedicated to be a resource it's called lowdownpaymentfacts.com it's a great place for either real estate agents or loan officers to just you know share with their clients because we pull different resources from the GSEs from my member companies from elsewhere that we think are really the best to hopefully better inform um, and educate consumers. When you talk about the savings rate, are you talking about like savings in general, like we're creating an emergency fund? Does it include like funding a retirement plan or does it just have to do with the home buying process? I was specifically referencing the home buying process. Okay. And, you know, so again, kind of taking that step back and saying, look, we understand that if you just, if a loan officer shows you two different comparisons of two different mortgage rates, you may look at one and say, oh, I'm saving 10 bucks over here. I'm going to go with this one. But taking a step back and saying, look, if, if I put, you know, more or less down, how much money am I going to have in the bank? And then over the long term, if I'm planning on being in this house for more than five years, chances are, if I go with private mortgage insurance, that insurance comes off of the loan and how much do I save over the longer term? And so all of those questions about sort of your savings and your savings rate come into play when we're thinking about sort of a more holistic picture of being home ready. Gotcha. And with regards to when they hit that 20% equity position, does it automatically come off or is there some process that they have to go through to have that removed from their payment? No, by law, once they hit 20%, it automatically has to come off. And so you can do that two different ways, right? There is obviously, if you're just paying down the debt, it's, you're eventually going to reach that 20% mark. But you can also call early if you get an appraisal because home prices are appreciating in your area and you feel strongly that your house is appreciated to that 20% mark. You can call before that scheduled time when you were otherwise going to be able to get to that 20% and say, look, my home price has appreciated. I've got 20% equity in my home now, and it can be paid off that way too. So you can call your servicer and have that appraisal done, and it can be removed that way as well. So one way or another, you're either going to get it sooner, but you'll definitely have it um, once you pay down that certain amount and have enough equity. Is that something that's happened outside of the 2008 crisis? No, that was before. It was actually part of um, a HOPA rule. And so it was done before, but it's, you know, we constantly encourage folks like this is a an added benefit for private mortgage insurance. So we encourage folks to take advantage of it. It's going to occur regardless because it's, you know, by law mandated to come off. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think it's a really good opportunity for consumers, especially in a, a rising home price environment to even have that opportunity to remove it sooner. Well, let me ask you this. Let's say uh, I grew up down in Florida and let's say I bought a property in 06, more than likely at the height of values there. And then obviously Florida was hit pretty dramatically. And let's say I appraised it at that time and I was had 25% equity, it comes off. Does the reverse happen if all of a sudden there's a fall in value? No, no, it doesn't. Um, okay. So as a consumer, you're kind of insulated. But your example is why, again, sort of, so the borrower benefits on the one hand, because they are able to get access, the lender and the GSCs and taxpayers benefit on the other hand, because, you know, we cover, you know, on average, we cover up to 35% of the value of the mortgage, we cover on average about 25%. So in those instances where borrowers were unable to pay, 
the home equity, you know, the, the home price appreciation had dropped and there wasn't enough equity in the house to cover the amount that was owed. That's where we're stepping in and we're paying that claim and hopefully making that whole home prices dropped even further than ever anyone anticipated in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you know, that is, that is the purpose of, you know, why you've got mortgage insurance. Right. With regards to, um, let's say I'm going to go out and my, the rates right now are ridiculously low, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like cheap money. Give, as, give me as much as you want to give me at that rate. Does the lender increase the rate a little bit in the event there is insurance needed in that particular loan? Well, no. I mean, and I can't speak for every lender, but um, I would say, you know, that would be almost the inverse of what you would expect. And, and once they see happen with private mortgage insurance, because we are taking and assuming that first loss risk, the lender should be able to keep their rates basically the same because we're assuming that risk. If private mortgage insurance was not there and the lender was going to put that loan on their books, you would expect that their rates are going to go up because they have to now account for that you know, additional risk that is part of their portfolio. Right. Okay. So they, they should stay the same. The reason your payment is increasing is because of the added insurance that is going to be added to the payment, correct? That's correct. And the, it, something else that I just, you know, I continue to kind of reiterate with policymakers and, and lenders and the like is this is a competitive industry. So, and again, FHA, the Federal Housing Administration serves a really important role. There are a lot of folks, you know, that agency services and, and does a really good job doing so. But the value of having a private mortgage insurance industry that's competitive is those lower rates. It's not as if, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, overcharging that can be done because, um, you know, it's extremely competitive. And lenders, you know, this coming so, from the origination world, lenders are competing on every single basis point. And so, for example, when the tax rates were reduced in 2017, our, you saw almost a straight across the board reduction in mortgage insurance pricing stemming from those lower rates, from the tax rates across the, the mortgage insurance industry. So those rates were immediately going into lower rates for borrowers through our industry. So I think it's just a really good example to demonstrate that you know if there is a savings to be had, this industry is going to push that savings through and it's going to eventually be realized by borrowers. Well, to that point, does that mean, let's say that I'm going to go out and I'm looking for, I'm going to buy a home and I'm going to, I'm going to require that. Should I be speaking to multiple lenders or uh, mortgage bankers because the insurance amounts are going to be different? It's not going to just be straight across the board. So typically, again, it's, it's a really very competitive industry. I would say that, you know, yes, go get multiple quotes. And the great news is, Matt, the technology that's coming forward in the industry, I mean, you know, it is um, happening at a rate that we have not seen in decades, frankly. And so the ability to get real-time pricing from both the mortgage insurance perspective and the lender perspective is almost immediate. And we all have our relationships with lenders and I still use my relationship. I still call my same lender. If I've got refinance questions or anything else, if we're going to thinking about purchasing a home, I, I go to those. The fact of the matter is I can do that on my computer today. I can go online. I can plug in my different metrics and say, this is how much I want to put down. And I can get a real time quote almost immediately from lenders. So the competitive nature of this industry, not just mortgage insurance, but sort of the more holistic industry complex is so vastly different and it's so technology driven and it's so real time that it's really made for a much more transparent and competitive industry across the board, which in my opinion, you know, strong opinion benefits the consumer. 
Right. So uh, with that, with where we are right now, dealing with the COVID situation, rates being really low, how do you see this moving forward? The real estate industry, the mortgage industry, the insurance industry, what's your thoughts on, and of course, you know, we're, what are we, a little less than 100 days from an election. How do you see this? (laughs) I mean, it seems like it's, um, there's so much going on. Can we really understand what that change is going to look like and how fast it's going to happen? Well, so a couple of things. I think it's really important to first solidify and clarify in folks' minds that, you know, coming out of the last financial crisis of 2008, the government focused for, you know, a full decade at least on getting the appropriate rules and regulations in place and in ensuring that, you know, the housing finance system is stronger and more robust, stronger underwriting guardrails, stronger just lending and origination generally to make sure that consumers were getting the appropriate and sort of sustainable lending that they needed. I kind of struggle to conceptualize the fact that we are going through another crisis in the span of just over 11 years. But I think it's really important to reiterate that this crisis is very different than the last time. The housing market is much, much stronger than it was during the last crisis. The industry is stronger. I mean, really from lenders to servicers to mortgage insurance companies and you know, all those groups coupled with regulators really rallied very quickly this time. And we didn't do this the last time quite as well as we should have, but we quickly rallied to identify sort of those immediate pain points that we really, you know, we knew would be the impacts of COVID on homeowners. So even though this is a healthcare crisis, you know, we're we're seeing and we will undoubtedly see more significant implications for borrowers across the country who are either, you know, temporarily without work or who, who may see a dip in their savings for a time period. And so you've seen policymakers focus on helping borrowers who might either be directly or indirectly impacted by COVID. Really, you know, their first focus was trying to help those borrowers stay in their homes. And I, you know, our industry felt like that was the most prudent thing for borrowers, for the industry, for for kind of everybody involved, because that gives everybody time to hopefully get back to work. And as you saw surveys, even with the job numbers, you'd see surveys about, you know, do those borrowers expect that they are going to go back to their place of employment? And, you know, especially in those early months, upwards of 80% said that they fully expected to go back. So it, it was indicative that, and those were people without jobs. And the majority of those people without jobs at that time were renters, not homeowners. But even in the forbearance numbers, we were seeing really strong indications that those borrowers expect to go back to their place of employment. And so, you know, those things we think are completely appropriate. There is discussion, of course, right now happening on the Hill. I've talked to a couple of folks today um, on Capitol Hill about the next package, what's coming next, and sort of what are the implications for the mortgage market. So there's, uh, we're not out of the weeds yet. I would say, you know, the mortgage market has done much better than most people thought it was going to do from the very onset, even till today. The purchase market, you know, the spring purchase market um, was better than we thought. It clearly had some rough patches. You saw about a 20% reduction in the number of listings. People were pulling their listings towards the end of May and June, but we're seeing listings come back. Uh, I was just, you know, telling Matt earlier that several friends that I am very close to, all of a sudden, all of them are looking at buying houses and the process is, you know, pretty quick. So there is still a lot of demand. And really, it comes back to those two fundamentals of demographics and rates. And you've got the demographics of the largest demographic in history of millennials 
coming into that prime home buying age, coupled with the fact that rates are historically low and have dropped. And that is just really kind of incentivizing that huge surge in not just purchase, but then of course, refinance. And, you know, as of a few weeks ago, where there are about 5 million households that were in the money and able to refinance because of low rates. So we've seen the refinance market just really boom over this summer. So again, just kind of seeing that late spring, that uptick that we usually expect definitely shifted a little bit more towards the midsummer, but we are seeing a strong purchase activity market. And then, like I said, the refinance market has been extremely strong. The other thing that we just continue to kind of try to hit home, especially with policymakers, is that coming out of this COVID crisis, you know, while that picture in the mortgage market is thankfully not as bad as, you know, some had thought it might be, the really critical thing will be to make sure that borrowers coming into this next wave have access to low down payment financing. I mean, COVID, no matter your your position, is going to have an impact on everyone. So whether that's a lower savings rate or bonus, your, you know, uh, you temporarily were without work, that is going to have a ripple effect on, on everyone. And so making sure that those low down payment options are available, like private mortgage insurance, I mean, over 80% of all first time home buyers last year put less than 20% down. So that what was that? Yeah, 80%, more than 80%, actually. You said first time home. home buyers. Okay. Yeah, wow. put less than 20% down. So that's, I mean, if that is an indication of the need for low down payment financing. And again, my expectation is, you know, the way that COVID is going to impact the pocketbook and the savings rate and all the rest, that demand for low down payment financing is only going to grow. Well, yeah, it sounds like it, especially in as we're coming in to the election and what we're seeing right now, do you anticipate, as you mentioned, demographics and rates that if we come out, hopefully as clean as we're expecting to, do you expect rates to start inching back up or even going up as fast as they came down so quick? No, <laughs> no, um, it's my short, really short answer. I don't because of a couple of different reasons. One, there's still just a ton of uncertainty in the marketplace. Two, because you know, while housing has been kind of a bright spot, there are other areas within the market that obviously have taken a beating, and that eventually could impact housing. And so, you know, my expectation is the Fed's going to try and continue to sort of shore up those parts of the market and keep strong markets like housing continuing to go. You know, I know that the rental market, for example, has been extremely hard hit. You know, a lot of the the individuals who lost their employment, you know, just based on their industry were renters. And so that the CMBS market and the rental market has taken a huge hit. So my expectation is the rates are going to slowly inch up over time, but it's probably, you know, we're probably, I hate to guess it, but probably at least six months from seeing any kind of change in rates. I mean, I would expect that we're going to, we're going to see continued low rates for, you know, the next several months to help us kind of weather the next phase of the storm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that coupled with the fact that you've got a potential new package of stimulus coming and a a real focus on making sure that borrowers um, have unemployment, which obviously is running out for many borrowers, but that's going to be a renewed focus and seems to have support from Republicans and Democrats. You know, so there's there's still more that folks are focused on. We're not out of the woods. There's a recognition of that. So I would expect the Fed to continue to kind of try to keep a steady hand. Gotcha. Now, with you being in D.C., 
and being around the policymakers and having those conversations, are there any type of changes that you see coming out of this that you could say, yeah, I'm going to put my finger on that. It's definitely going to happen within the real estate and mortgage industry, whether it's affecting how mortgages are processed. I love the, what you said when you said guardrails instead of guidelines, right? Yeah. <laughs> back in the financial <laughs> crisis guidelines, they like went out. But if it's a guardrail, hopefully we're not going over it. Is there right. any other type of changes that you can really say, yeah, I know that these things are going to be happening for sure, no matter what happens in the election, or does the election really change or, or have significance on any of those changes really happening? I, I'm actually going to answer the second question first. Elections always have consequences, right? And so the two things, the two big rules that I can tell you will absolutely happen, and they're going forward right now, are one, related to those guardrails. So there was something, and I'm sure you and your listeners are very familiar with this called a qualified mortgage rule that was implemented by the CFPB back in 2013. And it had to be revisited. And the CFPB at that time, obviously, we were coming through the financial crisis, the GSEs had, you know, had some taxpayer support, just to weather that storm, there was a lot of unknown and a lot of reliance on Fannie and Freddie. And so they said, look, Fannie and Freddie, you're going to get an exception from some of the very specific requirements of having a 43 debt to income ratio cap. And so Fannie and Freddie over the last six plus years have really done something that is pretty unique and unbelievable in the mortgage finance space. And that is that they had the sort of regulatory ability and timeout to test something in the market and to get this regulation uh, right. And they've made changes along the way to get it right. But they basically have developed, I mean, many of us, I definitely was in the camp of 43% debt to income is uh, an arbitrary number. And I and I understand the need to pick a number, but that is a, as arbitrary a number as any other number. And so, you know, when they gave the GSEs this exception or this GSE patch, the GSEs for the last six years have gone up to 50% DTI. But they've made sure that those borrowers had other compensating factors. So they had reserves in the bank. They had a higher credit score. They had a higher down payment. They had, you know, some very specific things that have worked in the marketplace. Well, that patch is set to expire January 2021. And can I back you up real quick? Yeah. Just so sure. our borrowers understand, can you help us understand when you say 43 uh, debt to income, help them understand exactly what that means? Absolutely. So if when you are a lender, and you're going to underwrite that borrower and tell them if they're going to get a qualified mortgage or not. And most lenders after the financial crisis did not want to take the legal risk of making something that's not a qualified mortgage. So almost, you know, the entire market is a qualified, you know, mortgage market today. The lender looks at the borrower's debt and there's a list of things that they would have looked at to kind of calculate those debts. And the GSEs have a have a list that they use, and there's a list in the CFPB's guidelines that they could use. Most lenders use the GSEs guides. They were a little bit more flexible. They were a little bit more clear. It was a little bit more in lender speak, and they were updated over time. So the the lender would look at the, that list of calculating the debts. They look at the list of calculating income. For example, with the GSEs and their guides, you can use bonus income as long as there's a history of bonus income. It's more complicated than that. But again, being on the originating side, you and your, your clients will kind of understand and appreciate that there was a specific list and, and lenders were familiar with it and could uh, get their hands around it. And they would calculate that ratio. Now, if they were, if we didn't have the GSE exception or that patch, you had to cut off any borrower who was above 43% DTI or debt to income. You just couldn't, couldn't do the loan or you were taking a lot of 
uh, of liability risk if you did that loan. So, and that forty three percent includes the proposed new mortgage along with those lists of debts, correct? That's correct. Right. That is correct. Yeah. And so, so the GSEs said, "Look, we've got this exception. We want to make sure we we're not going to cut off, you know, an entire section of the mortgage market." And so, us, you know, the mortgage insurance industry are also playing this very important second set of eyes on underwriting. And so, we've looked at, okay, what happened over the last six years? They were going up to 50%. And what we found was borrowers between 45 and 50% DTI actually performed better than those at 43% DTI because those borrowers were had more compensating factors. They had things like reserves in the bank. They had things like a higher credit score and a you know maybe a, a 5% down payment for a minimum. You couldn't do 3%, for example. So those are meaningful things that compensate for the higher debt to income. So fast forward, their patch is going to expire January 2021. There is a, a lot of twisting and turning right now because the, the proposed rule is out by the CFPB and they're going to change that. They're going to say, we no longer have a threshold. The GSEs no longer have an exception and we're no longer going to have a, a debt to income threshold that lenders have to meet. Instead, we're going to lean on a pricing approach. So you're basically going to calculate what a lender is charging in terms of pricing to determine if that loan is a qualified mortgage or not. And so these are, you know, really detailed kind of nuanced things that will have incredible impacts on the market, on the origination market, on how, how lenders underwrite and how, you know, what's now kind of the, the new QM standard. So that is one big, big thing. And the other big, big thing is the GSE's regulator, uh, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, and this is all getting really <laughs> in the weeds, but they are proposing capital for the GSEs. The GSEs have been in a timeout for 11 years after you know the 2008 crisis. They've been in this timeout and the regulator is you know, sits on their board and is, is part of their day-to-day operations. And this current regulator is saying, look, I, you know, we want to put them out of conservatorship. They're going to be private companies. And we're going to, to do that, we're going to set capital standards for the GSEs. Well, those capital standards, and, and again, all the lenders and all the originators understand this, the amount of capital you have to hold, it's supposed to be risk-based and it's going to impact a couple things. One, your pricing, because you're going to have to hold, you know, you're going to have to build that capital. And the, the risk that you in, you insure, I mean, it's going to definitely dictate if I'm going to do, you know, this certain borrower that I previously did, if I hope to hold punitive capital against that borrower, I'm no longer going to do that subset of borrowers. And so there's just, these are massively complicated rules, but they're going to have big implications. Now, let's say that November comes and Biden wins. You know, what are the changes that we would expect to see? Well, on the qualified mortgage front, I don't think they're going to change anything on that rule. I think they'll let whatever rule goes forward under this administration kind of be the the ruling um, the ruling hand on the GSE capital front. Not only do I think that the the uh, a different administration will do things differently, I think that their vision for the GSEs for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will be different. I don't think that they will view it as absolutely critical and necessary for the GSEs to be private companies like the Trump administration. I think they might view the GSEs more like you know, more kind of utility-like uh, companies, not utilities, but utility-like. So they'll have more regulation. They probably won't have to have as high a capital standards because they're more kind of viewed as tied to the federal government. So all those things are, 
you know, they're in the background and they're fairly arcane issues. I, I do know that they're very policy wonk issues, but they'll have really significant impacts on the types of borrowing that gets done, the types of lending that gets done and borrower costs. And so those are two things that my industry is very focused on and wanting to make sure that the guardrails stay in place, that, you know, we're, we're all kind of focused on not losing some of the progress that we've made over the last 11 years and that borrowers still have access to um, sustainable, affordable credit. Wow. Just to let everyone know, you heard it here first. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's smart money no, questions. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say this with regards to the capital. It, do yeah. I understand this correctly? Because this is the first I'm hearing of this. Is this very similar to what the banks had to do as they were coming out of the financial crisis? And we just saw them get, quote, stress tested about six weeks ago with regards yeah. to what their reserves have to be for the deposits that they have and then how they're turning around and using those deposits within their banking structure. Do I, is that what you're talking about? You, I mean, you've literally hit the nail on the head. And one of the debates about the GSE's capital is some folks view what the GSE's primary business is, it's a guarantee business. They view that more like insurance companies, but the current regulator said, no, look, banks are out there. They have a bank capital framework. You know, it's obviously Basel, but we updated it. We're stress testing it. And so that's a framework he's using. So as you, as your readers, or if they want to dig more into it, kind of keep that in the back of their mind, because that, if you want to boil down the big debate, that's sort of one of the big debate um, issues right now is, you know, does that look right for the GSEs? That amount of capital that banks hold, is that the right capital amount for the GSEs? Well, because I, I can see what you're saying. That would, that could dramatically change, like who could be competitive? Because oh, absolutely. Because if you can't raise the right capital, then you can't be competitive in the marketplace. So the raising of capital would happen very quickly. Now, what you said, if, the, uh, if Biden was to win, when you said more like a utility, do you see, and maybe not as much capital, yet keeping yep. the first rule in place where all of a sudden it seems like those guardrails are expanding a little if we're going from 43 up to 50? Do I understand that right? So, and, and really changing the way that we're, met, that we're doing the underwrite. So if we were basing your ability to repay before on debt to income, and now we're going to say, okay, lender, you you need to consider the debt to income, but really the bright line test for ability to repay is pricing. How does that look? What changes in that underwrite? Does a borrower, you know, do you price for all the different underwriting attributes of the borrower? And does that really sort of tell the borrower's true ability to repay? Or should there be some real underwriting metrics kind of tied into that? And so those are the questions that are getting kind of fought through right now, frankly, by the different um, stakeholders. And again, just really significant impact on this market in the way that we go about underwriting and the way that we go about pricing mortgage credit risk that will, you know, impact the entire system. Wow, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Be ready, because I'm telling you, 20, the, the fall and, and 2021, there are some really big things coming. And so these will be, if they're, you know, they're kind of on the, the, on the periphery for most people, unless you're here in D.C., but they're about to become front and center for everybody. So let me go back to one of the first questions I asked you, and that is, why is the mortgage process or does it seem so complicated? Could this, the way I'm seeing it, it could dramatically create complications, at least as we go through the the learning curve on understand, or the different lenders are going to do that and the insurance companies are going to do. How do we get through that learning curve on these potential new rules? Do I understand that correctly? 
I mean, absolutely. And it is a learning curve. And the alphabet soup and everything else that occurs in the mortgage space is unbelievable. Like, unlike anything I've ever seen. I think the reason one, just to answer the first question about why it's so complicated. It's so complicated because it's very political (laughs) and it's the most important asset that most Americans own. So everybody is, you know, tied to this idea of home ownership. And even this whole notion about millennials, you know, wanting, not wanting to own a home and whatnot, completely debunked. Homeownership matters. It matters to an individual's ability to save wealth. There's just so much that's tied up in homeownership and it, it, there are a lot of politics involved. Um, and so that's why I would say it's complicated because we've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And then, yeah, in terms of these changes, you know, there will be a lot of education after the first QM rule came out. I, <laughs> cannot tell you the number of law firm analysis that I received just on how, how are you supposed to go about doing this and services that will come available that will calculate the A4 that will be a standard. So there will be a learning curve. Um, there'll be an implementation timeline probably of a year so that folks can adjust their systems and incorporate these new changes, but you're completely correct. There will be a learning curve. Wow, that's a that's a lot to take in. Um, well, listen, I just looked up. I could sit here and talk to you forever because Lord knows I can talk, and I, <laughs> we're coming up on on forty minutes. But I really appreciate you coming on here and really giving us an inside scoop as to what's happening down there in DC with all the different areas within the real estate and and mortgage industry. You know, I was just out looking, I mentioned this to you earlier, my wife and I just wanted to go take a look at a home that was for sale speaking to our realtor. And I was asking her, she said, um, the house went on the market on Thursday, all offers had to be in on Wednesday, and they were fully expected to get over asking. And I was like, how in the world is this happening? Um, And it goes to a lot of what you said, you got you got demographics and you have uh, especially the rates right now. And and what she also said is at least around here, which is uh, like Western suburbs of Philadelphia, is there's just no inventory. Um, right. The inventory that is, is, is a really huge low. Issue. You know? Yep. Look, and it's, and it's the basics that we all have grown up with, right? It's demographics and rates and inventory. And part of the supply and demand issue is those demographics. It is, again, that large generation coupled with a you know, 30 year low inventory supply right now is going to, you know, on the good side, it's going to keep home prices stable. Um, That's our expectation is home prices will remain stable. And so even through COVID, we won't see the same dip that we've seen in the past through other crises. But the bad news is for for somebody who's trying to get in, you know, it makes that, that home and that purchase, you know, you're constantly chasing a moving target. So Kind of goes back to that point about needing low down payment options and making sure that, you know, that those sustainable products are in the market and that we're prepared for what's on the other side of this COVID crisis. Well, and it goes to your point as to why understanding the mortgage insurance, if if you're in that position where you can't put that 20% down plus closing costs, by the way, so it's yeah. it actually ends up being more than that, then you have these options. And hopefully, if you're out there and you're in that position that you're working with a, uh, a lender or a you know mortgage broker banker, that's helping you understand that. Because as you said, it's usually the largest asset and it's definitely one of the largest purchases. So, but, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming on, Lindsay, and uh, helping us. Is there a way that, or is there anything that you want to share with us as to where they can go find some of this? I know you mentioned the website earlier. We'll make sure to put it in the show notes or anything else that you would want us to put on there to help educate anyone that wants to go out and learn more about what you spoke about today. 
that would be fantastic. Look, I know your clients are sophisticated folks, but for their clients and for borrowers, you know, we have created a resource, slowdownpaymentfacts.com. We welcome feedback on it too. I mean, we think it's really important just to get the information out there. And so if there's other information that would be helpful for borrowers to see or hear, let us know. But we think it's a great spot just to kind of condense all this information into an easily digestible form uh, or format. And then for policy issues, for updates on mortgage insurance through COVID or just mortgage insurance generally in the industry, usmi.org is another great website. And we keep updates on policy happenings and we'll send out news um, news updates. So if you're interested in being on our newsletter list, let us know and we'd be, we'd be happy to add you to that as well. And we'll definitely make sure everyone that that's included in the show notes, not only on uh, the website, but then also in whatever uh, podcast player that you're utilizing, we'll make sure it's right. in there. So, well, listen, Lindsay, again, I appreciate you coming out. I definitely learned a lot today and um, look forward to maybe, you know, maybe we'll have you back after the election. You can tell us what you predicted and what's actually happening now in, in February That'd be of fun. 2021. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. Well, Matt, thank you so much for the chance to get together. Absolutely. Well, listen, everyone, if you have a question or scenario that you want us to address on Smart Money Questions, especially with what we spoke about today, all you have to do is go with speakwithmat.com. And right there is my online calendar. You can schedule a 15 or 30 minute conference call right there. You don't even have to pick the phone up. But listen, everyone, I'm glad you're there. I'm glad you're listening today. Hopefully you got something out of it. Everybody take care. We'll talk soon.